Okay, so last Friday night, my wife and I went and played in a cornhole tournament because that's how we fund date night. So, okay, this is a humble brag. Okay, here we go. Uh, this is the only time I say this. So my wife and I have played in three cornhole tournaments and we've won every single one of them. So, so literally, this is what happened. Like, we weren't going to go out, and uh, Crystal's like, hey, Four Silos is having their fifth year anniversary, and there's a cornhole tournament, and if we win, we get a $100 gift card. I was like, well, that's our opportunity to have more dates. And so we went, and we won, and it was a ton of fun. I won't tell you that there's only, like, four teams involved, so it really wasn't that impressive. But either way, we had a blast. But the, what was so fascinating about that night is um, my wife and I were playing cards, and this guy just comes up, there's a ton of people there, and this guy just comes up to our table, and he's like, I like that you guys are playing cards. I was like, cool, thanks. Yeah, we, lo- we love each other. Like, my wife's a huge game person, so we were playing golf, and uh, so we are just having a, a good time. Little did I know that we'd be playing against this other guy in the semifinals. No, it was the finals, actually. The finals that ran out of the cornhole tournament. So we get to the final round, I'm like, hey, funny seeing you again. And so we kind of like, super nice guy, we were chatting. And uh, so we were like, you know, competing against each other in the championship. The whole crowds were watching, all like two people were watching us. And we're like playing cornhole. And it's interesting, we got to chat. And you know how like God just like orchestrates conversations like in unique ways. You're like, Why are, how are we having this conversation right now in light of all the things that like I'm thinking about with church and 710 and all this stuff. And he, so he's talking to me and he's, uh, he, he pretty much said like, yeah, I used to be a part of the church, but then I stopped being a part of it. And I was like, oh, tell me more, you know, and I'm like, I'm like leaving the fact that like I'm a pastor and I'm a follower of Jesus aside for a second. I'm just trying to like get out of him. And he's just like, he's like, yeah, he's like one day I was like going to this church and we kept going. I was a part of a recovery thing there. Um, Obviously I won't share names. You don't know the person, but he's like, believe it or not. He's like, I was like, what's your story? And he goes, do you actually want to go there? I was like, I guess like, let's, let's do it. And he says, uh, well, if I'm going to be completely transparent, I've struggled with sex addiction uh, pornography addiction for years, and I started going to a Celebrate Recovery. And uh, anyways, we were going to church, and I was like all about it. And then one day, uh, my wife said, um, it's okay if we never go back again. Just never ask me to go. And I was like, dang. I was like, well, talk to me more about that. And he said, um, one, I just don't understand how uh, pastors can manage their ego when they're on a platform that big. And I was like, dang, okay. Like, I was like, yeah, I, I hear that. Like, let's talk through that. I didn't say let's talk through that. I just said, just keep talking. Uh, and I was like, okay, here we go. Uh, and then he goes, um, and like, you know, my wife and I changed uh, to like, we're affirming of same-sex relationships, which I'm not making a statement on that right now. Um, and I was like, oh, wow. Like, that's, I was like, okay. And he's like, yeah, I just, I, we've changed. And I feel like the church doesn't see people anymore. Um, we just like want to argue about what's right and wrong, and like we just don't see people hurting and struggling. And uh, <clears throat> I was like, okay. And then he's and he said uh, he said one other thing. And then of course, you know, we we finished the game, and he looks at me, and he's like, "So are you religious or something?" And I was like, "Well, I'm like I'm actually a college and young adults pastor, and I'm really like resonating with some of the things that you're talking about." I said because one, um, <clears throat> I was like, I'm doing a series right now, literally on church hurt, and like all the things that you're talking about right now. And I'm really sensitive to the sexuality conversation. I was like, because my brother's gay and he's married. And I was like, so like, there's a lot there that I resonate with. And like, I, I, I'm not like, I'm not at that place where I like, I agree with you theologically, but I have a lot of compassion and things that you're saying that I would love to talk through. So anyways, we go, 
uh, he's like, all right, let's get together. So last Thursday we went and got coffee. And I was like, tell me your story. And, and I'm just telling you, he went into this story and I was like, when he got into it, I was like, holy cow, this is messy. His story was messy. Uh, how the church that he was a part of handled his situation was messy. I mean, one of the things that he said is the, the, one of the elders at this church told because he was under church discipline for something that he was participating in in his life. And he said, one of the pastors told me that he had the authority to send me to hell. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and I was just sitting there and God's like, shut up, listen, and just love. And the reason I share that story is because I don't think I realized how disillusioned you can get when you've been hurt by the church. And maybe you realize that for you, like maybe like there's like a minor offense that you've experienced or maybe it's just like the normal messiness of life. But like it just made me go like, I don't even know all the answers to his situations. There's so many things that I want to talk about. So many things I want to be like, I get what you're saying, but like I wanted to have all those conversations, but I just left going. I remember going home to my wife and going like, it was just so messy. And here's the thing. Being a part of a family is just messy, is it not? There was this uh, um, Eugene Peterson who wrote the message translation of the Bible. Uh, when he was talking about the mess of the church, he, 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 he had this, he was, he was writing about community and he had this, um, this, this uh, little section of his book that I just want to like share with you. And it, I really resonated with it and you're going to laugh and giggle, but it's true. He says, we can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church than we can be a person and not be in a family. For God never makes private, secret salvation deals with people. His relationships with us are personal, true, intimate, yes, but private, no. We are family in Christ, and when we become Christians, we are among brothers and sisters in faith. And I love this, no Christian is an only child. And then he goes on to say this, and this is where it gets funny. He goes, but of course, the fact that we are family of faith does not mean that we are one big happy family. Amen? Okay, cool. The people we encounter as brothers and sisters are not always nice people. You go to church and you're like, why are they not nice? Because sometimes they're not nice. The people, uh, so they're not always nice people, they do not stop being sinners the moment they begin believing in Christ. So often we think that we do or we expect them to, each other. Some of them are cranky. That's like me past 8 p.m., so like, sorry if you get a cranky version of me at like 9 p.m. It's not intentional, but just it comes out sometimes. Uh, some of them are dull, and if others, if the, if the truth must be spoken, are a drag. Are we resonating? Okay, but at the same time, our Lord tells us that they are brothers and sisters in faith. I love this. If God is my father, then this is my family. So the question is, and this is where we're going to launch from tonight. The question is not, am I going to be part of a faith? But how am I going to live in this community of faith? One of the questions that I want to put before you tonight is, listen, the family of God is not going to be messy. That's a given. It's when the mess hits, how are you going to respond? Let me just ask you a question. One of the best indicators of the ways that you'll know how you'll respond in the future to the mess is how you've responded in the past. The best predictor of your future is your past. So let me just ask you a question tonight. How have you so far up to this point handled the mess in the church? And what does it even look like to handle it in a way that honors Jesus? Uh, one of the things uh, that I hear 
young adults say, and I'm just going to be honest, I've, I've said it a lot, is like, hey, you know this, you talk to somebody like, why can't we just be a New Testament church? You're like, why can't we just go back to the early church in Acts where everybody was like on fire for Jesus, there was no problems, you know? And it's funny, like you guys hear that? It's like, why can't we just go back to being the type of church in the early, like, the early years, you know? It was so good, and people try to like model their churches off of, like, off of the book of Acts and all this stuff, and that's so good, there's so many good things there. But I just, sometimes I sit back and go, I think sometimes we forget that the reason the New Testament letters exist is because Paul is writing to churches that are a mess and have problems. And so we sip our coffee, you know, get up in the morning, we have our tea, we get our comfy couch, and we're like, Galatians, do not bite and devour each other. Highlight that verse. <laughs> you know, hey, stop sleeping with your mother-in-law, and then now the church is bragging. It's like, let's highlight that. You know, it's like, like Paul is writing to churches that are having extreme issues, that are having extreme hurt. Like, if you were part of these churches, you would go, I want to go to a different church. These people don't get it. These people, what they say and what they live. And here's the thing. Here's why I love this. Paul is writing to these churches. He birthed a lot of them, humanly speaking. And what I love about Paul is his resilience. Here's one thing that's so fascinating. Paul doesn't give up on churches. He doesn't claim church hurt. Paul doesn't become cynical. Paul doesn't become skeptical. Paul doesn't become disillusioned with the church. And he's dealing with problems that are equal to, if not greater than a lot of the things that we're experiencing today. And, and here's why, and here's the key, and then we'll launch into today's text. Paul had a vision of God that was bigger than the vision of the church. Do you understand what I mean by that? Paul's vision of what God was doing in the world through the church was bigger than just his vision for his church. So when things got messy, he could zoom out and go, I see what God is doing big picture, and I'm not going to get disillusioned. I'm experiencing hurt. Listen, 2 Corinthians was written to the Corinthian church because the Corinthian church rejected Paul, and he has to repair a relationship with them. There's all sorts of things going on, and he, and he still moves towards them in wisdom and love. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to, if you have your Bibles, open up to Galatians chapter 6. Um, and we're going we're gonna to look at five things that I would say Paul would say to the Christian or the Christian community that is struggling or, exper or experiencing hurt, conflict, disillusionment. Uh, and I'm going to kind of like paraphrase maybe like the things that he would say in modern, in modern language. And then uh, we'll just apply it to our lives. I also want to give a caveat. The rest of my sermon, I'm not going to be super polished up here. Like today, I am more interested in giving you content than giving you a creative sermon. Uh, tonight is going to feel way more like I'm going to actually tell you what to do. I think sometimes you're like, you hear all these things and it's like up here. And it's like, well, what do I actually do? And I want to I give you guys some helpful maybe handlebars to process the conflict and hurt that you are experiencing in your own life. So, okay, with that being said, the Galatian church. So Paul is writing to Galatians, a little context on this community. Uh, so there are some false teachers that entered this church community, and they were saying that if you wanted to be a part of the people of God, you needed to get circumcised. Now listen, if you're not familiar with the Christian uh, like scriptures or the story of the Bible, that's a really confusing thing. I'm not going to go into it right now, but essentially, these false teachers come in. They create division everywhere. Paul has to correct the false teachers, correct the like, kind of like division and chaos that is happening in the church. It's a church that's hurt. It's a church that's in crisis. It's a church that's fragmented, and Paul is writing to them to root themselves in the gospel and to have unity together again. Does that make sense? And so listen, in, in the letter, he says things like, hey, stop biting each other. 
and stop devouring each other. Imagine like going and like after like one of the church services, how was church today? It's like we were biting and devouring one, one another. You're like, that sounds like a lovely experience. So there's all the, but there's factions, there's dissensions, there's superiority complexes at play. And they're on the verge of literally destroying one another. So Paul says, listen, do not live out your fleshly desires. It's creating chaos in the community, but live by the spirit because unity happens and uh, flourishing happens. And then he jumps in and he teaches them what to do when they're experiencing this conflict and chaos in the church and will learn from it. So the first thing that I would, I would say Paul says to the Christian who is experiencing hurt is to please remember that y'all are brothers and sisters. I would say that's the Texas translation. Uh, all throughout the scripture, uh, when Paul is saying, like, he's writing to the church and he's saying, you, hey, and you, and you, that verb, you, is always in the plural. So he's not saying, like, you, and you, and you. He's literally saying, y'all. Like, literally, if you read your New Testament and change you to y'all, that's what you would have heard if you were in these churches. So Galatians 6.1, this is what Paul says. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the, sh- by the Spirit should re- restore that person gently. Now, I was going to go jump straight to the next point, which is if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. But then I stopped and said, it's interesting that Paul said brothers and sisters. Now, when we read the scriptures so often, we're just like brothers and sisters, then we move on. What Paul is trying to do here, he's saying, listen, he's actually trying to appeal to their heart. He's saying, listen, I'm about to talk about sin and conflict, and the first thing that I want you to know is that you're brothers and sisters. So Paul writes this letter, and he goes, Brothers and sisters, don't you know that you're family? Don't you know that you're one? I know there's sin going on, but know that you're brothers and sisters. <clears throat> I was thinking about this, the power of appealing to like, somebody's relationship or union more than rational arguments. Uh, how many of you have like, grown up in a family, you have a sibling, and like, you're fighting with one another? You know, it's like me and my brother Casey, believe it or not, every now and then we'd fight with each other when we, we, grew, we grew up. And it's funny, we could be like bickering, and I'm like, Dad, he did this and this, and Casey's like, well, Corey did this, and he always does this. And, and, and there's a moment in the conversation, in the fight, where, like, my dad would say, guys, 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 you're brothers. You're brothers. And there's something about, it's interesting. My dad didn't appeal to, like, what was going on. He didn't appeal to, like, hey, well, let's talk it out. His first thing was, don't you know your brothers and your sisters? There's something about that when you're experiencing hurt with somebody or conflict where you just need to go, hey, can we just zoom out for a second and go, you're brothers and sisters. You're brothers and sisters. Don't you know that you belong to each other? Isn't your union together greater than the bickering that you're experiencing? Isn't it greater just to give up, maybe, you winning? Because you're brothers and sisters. It's interesting, um, one of the only letters that it seems like Paul is not correcting an issue in his church is the book of Philippians. And you think he's trying not to correct anything, and then you realize he's actually trying to correct something. All throughout the letter, he's like, he's joyful. He's like, you partner with me. He's like, joy and joy and joy and joy. And then literally, this is hilarious. Think about, put yourself in the story for a second. In the middle of the letter, he appeals to two female leaders in the church, and he says this. So think about this. This letter is read to a church community. Imagine being here. And you're all like, all right, I wonder what Paul's going to say. They open up like the scroll and they start reading. And then Paul starts calling two leaders out in the middle of the whole community. Imagine like the, the awkwardness in the room. So he goes, now I appeal to Yodia and, and Syntyche. I can never pronounce her name. Syntyche. Moving on. I love this. He goes, please. Do you hear that? That, that fatherly family language? Because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. 
Here's what I want to say really quick before we want to move to the next thing. Knowing your sacred union together as brothers and sisters will soften your heart so that you can make allowance for each other's faults because you're brothers and sisters. The second thing, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of our, our message uh, tonight, uh, Paul says, handle hurt before hurt has a handle on your community. I want to say that again. Handle hurt or sin before hurt has a handle on your community. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Now, when he says you who live by the Spirit, he's not saying like there's Christians who like really have the Spirit and there's those that don't. What he's saying is, he's saying if you who live by the Spirit, in other words, if you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to restore that person gently. You should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. And the reason the person needs to have the Holy Spirit, because gentleness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, uh, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. We'll get to that later. Carry each other's burdens, and in that way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, if I were, so Paul's writing to a community. You have to understand, put yourself there. There's actual hurt going on. There's actual sin going on. And Paul's saying, listen, if there is sin, if you've been hurt, if there's stuff going on, you should address it. You have to address it. And if I would to, if I, and what I, I really was fascinated by that, that language, should restore. He doesn't say you should like pray about it and think about it. He says, if it happens, you need to restore. And uh, here's why I think this is really powerful, because of what happens when you don't deal with hurt in this way. When you don't handle hurt, hurt will end up having a handle on your heart and end up having a handle on your community. Let me illustrate this for a second. So on the screen, I have a picture of a table uh, in a park, and there's like kind of weeds growing all around it, and uh, and I love the, I love this picture because I feel like this actually captures the heart of what Paul is trying to do here. Now, it's just a picture, you're like, okay, that's cool, but I literally have been thinking about this image all week long, and here's why. In the scriptures, the table represents fellowship. Think about Jesus. There's this kind of like, scholars will make this joke that Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. It's like how he discipled people, how he reached people. He was just at a table. A table represents uh, a fellowship, intimacy, relationship. I don't know if you know this, but when you gather on Sunday at, a ch- at, at church, it's actually centering around the table, which is the communion table. It's this meal. It's this picture of uh, friendship with each other, friendship with God, dining, joyful celebration, harmony, flourishing, everything that you want your friendships to be, your community to be, this community to be, everything. That's the ideal. When you don't deal with sin or hurt and you allow weeds to grow at the table of fellowship, eventually weeds will so overgrow that table that nobody can even sit at that table anymore. Are you tracking with me? Paul is saying, listen, how many of you have friendships that look like that? What was once a table, friendship, beauty, intimacy, and then all of a sudden like something happened or you started getting bothered and then you didn't address it? You're like, oh, we just naturally stopped being friends. We just naturally stopped sitting at the table. And it's because... Weeds were allowed to be grown at the table. And Paul's saying, listen, if you see sin, you got to deal with the sin because we don't want that to happen. You guys tracking with me? Okay, I'm going to press pause here.
and I'm going to give you like older brother coaching and wisdom from the teachings of Jesus in scripture on how you actually don't allow weeds to grow at your table in friendships. Okay? Okay? Okay, man, you guys, we're going we're to get going. All right, what do I actually do if someone hurts me or sins against me in the Christian community? The first thing that I want to say is everything that I'm about to say, I am not talking about abuse. Uh, and so I don't want you to listen to me through that lens. If you have experienced abuse, I would just encourage you to talk to your pastor, talk to a leader. Uh, but I am talking about just ordinary life where hurt naturally happens, even when it's really hard. Uh, the first thing that I would recommend, and this is the, this is the part I want you, I, I just want you guys to, to know. I want you to like take pictures, write this down, and follow these steps in your relationships. The first thing that I would encourage you to do is to cool off and prayerfully reflect. When you experience hurt or sin from, from somebody, cool off and prayerfully reflect. Um, one of the worst things that you could possibly do when you're sinned against or you're hurt is have a conversation in an emotionally triggered state. Something happens, you're like, what the heck, I'm going to go talk. You know, it's like, do not have a conversation in that state. Because you'll obviously probably say something that you wish you didn't. And, and here's the thing. Oftentimes when we're triggered, we don't see our own selves in our own hearts very clearly. And so part of cooling off and prayerfully reflecting is to go like, is this a them thing or is this actually a me thing? And they just hit an insecurity and now I'm really upset. Example A, I feel like I'm not being loved on in my community, but I really have an insecurity problem, and I feel like nobody is, is loving on me when people actually are, and then I start having all these accusations against other people. The cool off and prayerfully reflecting is, is this actually a me thing? You don't want to have a conversation in a triggered state. Uh, here's one of the other things I would say. Listen, tell God how pissed you are. Do not tell somebody else. Tell God how pissed you are. Do not tell someone else. Proverbs says that a fool gives vent to their anger. And I just want to, I'm saying this humbly, and I'm saying this to myself. When you experience hurt from somebody, I don't, when you experience hurt from somebody and you just vent, that is not godliness, that is foolishness. So do, here's the, complain to God, don't complain to somebody else. And here's the thing, in your reflecting, find the ways that you do the same thing as that person. Because it'll start to compassion, to, to instill compassion in your heart and soften your heart for the conversation that will eventually come. Does that make sense? So you cool off and prayerfully reflect. The second thing is that you get wisdom on the situation, but only if it's necessary. Um, <clears throat> ideally, when you get wisdom, do not go to your friend. I know, I'm going to say things that might, that might sound weird. Do not go to somebody who would be emotionally as engaged as you are. Like, for example, if you have a friend that's like, I'm going to back you no matter what. And then you go to your friend and you're like, they did this. And they're like, oh my gosh, you know, like they're not going to disagree with you. I would actually encourage you, if you have experienced hurt or if you're wrestling somebody, sometimes you don't need to have a conversation with somebody else. What Jesus says, like, you know they offended you, you know it needs to be done. Go to that person. You don't need to tell anybody. That's the godly thing to do. If you need to, like, I don't understand. Is this me or this them? I don't. You need to, like, go to somebody. And here's my two tips of advice. Go to somebody who is more spiritually mature than you. Don't, and oftentimes, that's why you don't go to a peer, because oftentimes a peer might be less spiritually mature, and they won't actually give you advice on the teachings of Jesus. They'll just give you their own advice, and we don't want that. And then uh, specifically, go to somebody that you know, if you put the situation in front of them and they disagreed with you, they tell you. 
Because oftentimes we just go to somebody to just get reaffirmed back, to then instill our anger more, and then to go back. Does that make sense? So we go to somebody who is older. We go to somebody who is more spiritually mature. And I, I want to say this. Do not go to another friend in the same friend group. Do, do not go to another friend in the same friend group. Let me give you an example. All right, here we go. Carson sins against me. I'm pissed. Nate's his best friend. We're all friends. And I'm like, hey, Nate, I have these like, glasses on how I view Carson through what happened. And I'm like, hey, Nate, did you hear? Like, I, I just, hey, dude, we're real close. You know, we both love Carson. Um, but I just got to share this with you. Like, this happened. Can you help me think through it? And I, this is what I do. I tell him what happened. I take off my glasses, and I give him the same lenses. And now he views Carson through the lenses that I have. And then guess what? Even if he agrees with me, he can never see him the same way. So when you go to another friend in the same friend group, you just start passing out lenses. And that is damaging to your friend, and it's not godly. So when you need to seek advice, you, go to an, you do not go to another friend in the friend group. And I want to say this. In the family of God, we do not talk about people. We talk to people. Oftentimes, people will come to me on it for advice on how to, to, like, hey, Corey, like, I'm really having issues with these people. And I would say coming to me is the right person because I'm responsible for this community and I can help them pastor them through it. And they'll oftentimes come to me to get advice that they'll never actually do. And I just go, listen, if, if, if you are not going to talk to the person, you're not allowed to talk about them. You tracking with me? If you are not, if you are not because you're too scared, and I understand it's scary, if you are too scared to talk to somebody, you do not have the right to talk about them to somebody else. So we get wisdom on the situation only if it's necessary, and then we go to the person privately. Um, and we do it in person. Do not text your way through a disagreement. Text the person if you need to, saying, hey, we have a disagreement, can we talk? Because here's the thing, oftentimes in Instagram culture, digital culture, we're like super tough behind a keyboard, but we can't look somebody in the face and have a conversation. And there's something about in-face conversations. Like when I actually see you, I, it's, it's so interesting. There have been people that have really, really hurt me, but when I look them in the face, compassion starts to fill my heart. And there's something about face-to-face in in, in like -face interaction that allows us to be human with one another. Does that make sense? So you go to the person privately after you've cooled off, you've reflected, you get wisdom on the situation, but with somebody who's older and more mature, you don't go to another friend in the friend group, maybe even your friend, because they might emotionally just agree with you. We don't talk about people. Uh, we talk to people. Uh, and then, listen, when you go to the person, you share as honestly and as humbly as you can. Here's, this is one of the things that I would just really encourage you with is humility, honest, ra radical honesty and radical humility can go together at the same time. You can look at somebody who's hurt you and go, Carson, sorry, you're my boy tonight, here we go. Carson, um, I just want you to know, like, this is what happened. You may not have realized that, but when you did that, it made me really mad at you. And I'm going to be gentle about that, but I just want you to know that that really hurt. Oftentimes we're like, hey man, I just want you to know this happened. Oh, it doesn't good. It didn't even bother me. You haven't been sleeping the past four nights because you've been thinking about it. 
We go and we're as honest as we can. We're as humble as we can. And then Jesus says, if they repent, you've won your brother back. You've won your sister back. Talk about it no more and move forward. And if it goes south, that's when you get a leader involved or a pastor involved. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Typically, when I have thought through being honest with people and reconciling, it's just stopped there. But when I, when I was thinking through this, this message and I was reading the passage, I was like, Paul actually says something that is so interesting here that I don't think we, I don't think about this that often, is that you walk with the person through the full healing process of their sin. So when you, when you, when you are sinned against or you see sin in somebody else, you have a responsibility to walk with that person. In the passage, you don't have to go back there, but it said carry each other's burdens. And we take that, you're like, carry each other's sadness burden and discouragement burden. And it's like, yes, yes, and yes. In context, Paul is talking about carrying their sin burden with them. Oftentimes, uh, it's easy in the Christian community that we can act like the Good Samaritan, where like, we see somebody on the road in sin, struggling, in death, and we like pass on by. We're like, oh my gosh, like there's something going on there. There's hurt going on there, but I'm just going to kind of pass on by. But Paul says we carry each other's burdens. That means like, listen, the idea of carrying each other's burdens, like think of like a load or something that's on your back and like you get underneath that load with them and you walk with them through the process of healing. And, and, and Paul says in doing this, we fulfill the law of Christ. And we know that because Christ carries our burdens, we carry our brothers and sisters' burdens too. Because Christ carried our burdens, we carried our brothers' and sisters' burdens as well. You tracking? All right, part two. If somebody sins, you, you restore the person gently. All right, so that's peer-to-peer relationships. What do you do when a pastor sins against you or hurts you? Right here, if I do something, if Dan Moon does something, Elder Dan over there, what do, what do we do? All right, here's the first thing that you do. You do the same thing. <laughs> you do the same thing. Oftentimes, guys, and I, and I want to be as humble and as transparent as possible. If you have a relationship with your pastor, if you feel like you've had conversations where they're approachable, if you feel like, like hey, I'm just really like reading into something like Corey's doing, or I actually feel like he like, is in sin, or there's something that's like, you have a responsibility to do the same thing. Because pastors are humans too. You don't talk with other people about it and give them lenses. How many of you have damaged a pastor's reputation because you took your perceived hurt and just spread it like cancer in the community? Like, you see that? See what he did? He always does this. Did you notice he does this? No, I didn't until now. Well, now I see it. You know what I'm saying? And it just like, it's like this wildfire that just spreads. And what and Jesus says is like, the same process applies. You go to them and you talk to them. Um, the second thing that you do... Option A is go to them. Option B is to go to a church elder or pastor in the church that you trust. Now, um, because of just natural, just there shouldn't be huge power dynamics between pastors and people in their community, but sometimes in life there just is, or there's a felt like, there's a felt gap there, and, and maybe sometimes that pastor's unapproachable or they've proven to be unapproachable. It's interesting. Jesus has like his process for like peer-to-peer relationships, but Paul in 1 Timothy 5 actually seems to have uh, a different process when people have issues with leaders in the church. Look at this verse. It says, Do not accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Here's why I share that verse. What Paul is assuming 
is that people in his congregation may have an accusation against a leader and they haven't gone to that leader because they don't feel comfortable. So the, the next right thing to do is to go to another pastor who has a shared level of uh, authority or experience that can hold that pastor accountable. Does that make sense? So the, the first option is you go to that person, you do the Matthew 18, you follow Jesus' steps. Or the second thing that you do is you go to another uh, pastor or elder in the church for that process. All that to say, before we move into the third point, here's what I want to say. There's a couple of things that I just really want to just challenge you with. Addressing sin and hurt is not optional for the believer. Addressing hurt that you have towards somebody else is not optional for you as a believer. Paul says, if somebody sins, you should restore them. It's interesting, Paul doesn't say, hey, if somebody sins, you should pray about possibly restoring them. He doesn't. Now, I think you should pray about how to do that, the wise thing, but you have a responsibility to do that for your brother and sister, and it's going to be good for your heart. The second thing, and this is what I really, I know I feel like I'm like coming, like I'm like coming at you. I'm doing it in love because I feel like we have an unhealthy way sometimes of operating through things like this. The next thing that I want to say is that sometimes we can be burden pointers versus burden carriers. <clears throat> sometimes in the Christian community, and we're not trying to do it, and burden here is referring to like sin or ways you've been hurt, is we just like, we come to the church, and this is a lot of church hurt, and I'm just gonna like, I'm just gonna be loving and say, this is a lot of things that I experienced. And we, we're burden pointers. That's sin, that's sin, that's hurt, that's, you know what I'm saying? And it's like we just end up pointing out all the things in a community or in a church or in a person that are like wrong. And what Paul is saying, he said, listen, if you see a brother or sister in sin with a burden, he says, you should restore that person and carry their burdens. Rather than pointing at it, you get underneath that load with them and walk through it with them. All right? So, if, so, the, so Paul says, if you, uh, to handle sin in your community before sin has a handle on your community. The third thing that he says is, make sure your heart doesn't become prideful in the process. As you seek to reconcile with somebody or as you seek to restore somebody or to be honest with somebody, make sure that your heart doesn't become prideful in the process. And I think there's a slide for that, uh, Addie, on the, on the next one, maybe. Uh, anyways, so uh, look, at, look at verses one through four with me. Look what Paul says. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you should restore that person. Then notice this. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, so get underneath the sin load with them. And, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something, pride, when they are not, it's self-deceiving. They deceive themselves. And I love this. It says, each one should test their own actions. So when you are addressing somebody, make sure you're testing your own actions too. Then they can take pride in themselves alone. I love this. And Paul does not want people to compare themselves with somebody else. So tempting to do when you see sin in somebody else. For each one should carry their own load. I think it's really fascinating that in this part of the passage, Paul is not focused on the sinner. He's more concerned about the restorer and I think in that, because oftentimes we restore people in a way that is hard. And it's interesting, that phrase, 
for each one should carry their own load. What is he talking about? What Paul is saying, this is what Paul's saying. When you see sin in somebody, restore them, do it in gentleness. Make sure your heart doesn't become prideful towards them in the process where you just start viewing yourself as better than them because they did that to you. Because you're going to have to carry your own load. And what he's referring to there is like you're going to have a personal responsibility for your own sin, so be careful on how you, on the load you point out in others. That specifically is referring to the final judgment of like everybody has their own load, their own baggage, and you're going to have to give an account for that. So one of the questions that I think Paul is saying here, if, he, if, if we were to like reflect on this, I think one of the things that he would say is, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> What's more sinful in God's eyes? The sin in your sibling or the pride that you have against them in your own sin? What's more sinful in God's eyes, the sin in your sibling or the gossiping you do about them to your friends? Paul is saying, listen, be careful because you're going to have to carry your own load too. And Paul understands this, and so he writes to the church community in Romans, and he says this, why do you pass judgment on your brother? In other words, sin in your brother, and now you're judging them in pride. Or why, why do you despise your brother? You get that brotherly language of like, why? That's your, that's your family, you know? And he says this, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So for Paul's saying, like, don't be judgmental towards your sibling because you're going to have to stand in judgment before God too. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And then I love this. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now listen, when I, when I say things like this, you're, like one of, the, one of the responses that I had, and maybe some of the responses that I hear all the time, you're like, well, I'm just not going like, to be honest with my sibling. Like, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to judge at all in the good sense. It's like, if, if I'm going to have to give an account, if Paul's like, hey, don't become prideful, I just won't say anything, and I was, I'm just going to let them go. Here's the point. The point isn't for you to avoid judgment, but to have humble judgment. That's really important. Paul isn't saying, I want you to avoid judgment. He's just saying, I want you to have a humble judgment in gentleness. And here's why I know that we're supposed to judge each other as brothers and sisters. You ever hear that phrase, like, don't judge me? That's a big thing right now in our culture. Don't judge me. And I always go, well, we're supposed to judge each other. We're just supposed to do it humbly and gently. Here's why I know this. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13 it's a crazy chapter in Corinthians, and Paul is talking to the church. And he goes, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? In other words, Christians, you have no business judging the people in the world. They do not know God. And then I love this. Are you not to judge those inside the church? He's saying it's your responsibility to one another in love to carry their burdens and to judge them. Christian, I want to say this, brothers and sisters, you're, you, you're responsible to judge each other in love. God will judge those outside, and, and the point is, you judge those inside. Are you tracking with me? Jesus says this, Matthew 7. So that was Paul, Matthew 7. This is Jesus, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Jesus says this, do not judge, or you too will be judged. And oftentimes we like stop, they're like, that's the teaching, I'm not going to judge anybody. And then he goes this, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? He says, you hypocrite. This is interesting. First, take the plank out of your own eye. 
do like plank research. How am I doing the same thing? And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is saying, listen, do not judge. In other words, like, hey, don't judge in pride. Do some self-evaluation. Cultivate some compassion and humility. And he goes, and then you will see clearly. So it's a sight issue. He goes, when you don't analyze yourself, you actually can't see straight. But when you actually do some self-reflection and prayerful reflection, Jesus goes, now you can see clear enough. Go take that plank out, that speck out. Are you tracking with me? So it's not a prohibition. Jesus isn't trying to get us to avoid judgment. He's trying to shape our attitude in it. He doesn't want an attitude of arrogance. He wants an attitude of humility. Um, In my experience, there's typically two ways I think that can be unhelpful that we respond to conflict. The first is that there's a problem of arrogance. uh, And that's that pride thing that Paul just uh, warned about. And here's what I'd say. An an arrogant heart... (laughs) forgets that Christ had to die for you just as much as he had to die for them. An arrogant heart forgets that Christ had to die and shed just as much blood for you as he did for them. And also, the arrogant heart also forgets that Christ loves them just as much as he loves you. Jesus deeply loves your brother and sister in Christ who has hurt you just as much as you doesn't mean he's justifying their sin, but he does love them because he died for them. See, the problem with avoidance, there's like the arrogant-like side, like I'm just kind of like have an attitude towards you. And then there's the avoidant. This is my natural personality. It's like, oh, there's an issue. I'm going to, you know, it's like, I'm going to, anybody do that? You know, sometimes I'll have conversations with my wife. I'm like, hey, I think you like that. I think that deserves a conversation. And she's like, oh my gosh, you know, like whatever that feeling, like the avoidance thing, but that, that is a thing. Uh, And I think oftentimes, uh, be careful about this in your heart. Oftentimes we avoid dealing with conflict and we do it by minimizing somebody else's sin. And how this plays out uh, when I'm walking with people is they're like, yeah, what they did, you know, it really wasn't a big deal, so I'm not going to have a conversation. And I'm like, so why are you talking to me about it? And I mean that in a humble sense, but it's like, and then they talk to that person about it, it's like, but it's not a big deal. And I'm like, hey, it's a, sin's a big deal. Don't use that as a way to avoid. Go and have the conversation. Our hearts can be creative like that. And here's another thing. When we avoid being honest with somebody, it robs you and the other person from becoming like Jesus. Because it's interesting. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is like, honesty for you, honesty for you, honesty for you. And he's like, he's ruthlessly compassionate and radically honest. And you're like, how is he so secure? And one of the reasons that I think is Jesus genuinely saw his honesty as a gift to the other person to be freed from their sin or to have the gift of transformation because somebody loved them enough to have the hard conversation. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you, if you had a glaring error in your life and somebody knew about it and didn't come to you about it, how would you feel? You'd be like, please, I, don't, like, I, I can't see it unless you tell me. So why, so why wouldn't we want to do that for other people? In a spirit of gentleness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Like, I'm not going to say anything. Avoidance. And then he says, nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Pretty good, huh? 
Okay, fourth thing. Make sure you are cultivating now what you hope to harvest later. Make sure you are cultivating now what you hope to harvest later. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like breeze past this for this, the sake of time. Uh, but look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says this. So he talks about confronting somebody else in their sin. And he talks about be careful about pride. And then he says, a man reaps what he sows. So there's like this transition in these verses. Like, well, how did you, like, what are you even talking about at this point? He goes, a man reaps what he sows. Thinking like farmer mentality. He's like, if you plant this seed, you're going to get that type of tree. If you plant this seed, you're going to get that type of tree. A man reaps what he sows. So whoever sows to please their flesh, those are the things that come out of us that aren't the spirit of God, from the flesh will reap destruction. So when you sow to the flesh, you're going you're gonna to reap destruction in your life. But if you sow to the spirit, from the spirit, you will reap eternal life. This is what Paul is saying. Listen, if you want unity in your community, if you want depth of your, in your community, if you want flourishing in your community or in your friendships or your friendship that isn't that, start sowing to the spirit. Sow seeds of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, honesty, goodness. Like sow to those things. But if you want division in your community or your relationships, if you want shallowness, if you want disorder, respond with the flesh. Gossiping, slander, nurturing bitterness. And Paul's saying, listen, what, the question is, what do you want to harvest in your relationships? And if you want to harvest flourishing relationships, then you have to sow to the Spirit, and sometimes that means honesty. Here's the point that I want to make in this. Do not respond to the hurt that you've experienced with the flesh. Do not respond to somebody else's sin that they've given you with your own sin in flesh. Because what you'll reap is destruction in that relationship. Respond to hurt from the Holy Spirit. Hey, Jesus, they slap you, turn the other cheek. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. That's sowing to the Spirit. <clears throat> Number five, and we're gonna, we're gonna land the plane here because I, I need to end. Uh, Paul ends by saying this, keep going. The hope is in the harvest. Look at verses eight and nine. He says this, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest. I love this. So don't become weary. And let's just be honest. Paul has to tell people not to become weary because people are weary. So people, you in the room who are weary, this is what Paul would say to you. Let us, this is what God would say through his scriptures to you. Let it, don't become weary in doing good. Keep up the hard work of sowing to the spirit in your relationships. Keep doing the things that are good and that create order and flourishing and reconciliation. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, not now, but at the proper time, you will reap a harvest in that, I promise. If we do not give up. He's saying, listen, when you're tired, when I'm on a long run and I'm at the end, and I'm weary, what do I want to do? I want to stop running. And Paul is saying, listen, do the hard work, don't give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Adrian Cassian, when he's talking about this, this is what he says. He says, Paul urges the Galatians to practice the spirit-guided life without breaks or time off. They should do good whenever there is an opportunity. Special attention should be devoted to the family of faith, serving those intimately who are closest to us. Wait, sorry, I read that wrong. Serving those who are closest to us is sometimes the most difficult. Often, is this not true? Those closest to us know our faults and mistakes intimately. And we have a shared history of hurting each other. 
So it is crucial to follow the Spirit's guidance rather than find excuses for not acting. That's the avoidance mentality. But only if we rely on the power of the Spirit will we overcome our negative feelings, our weariness, and laziness, and not grow weary in doing what is right. This is why I love that Paul used the illustration of sowing and reaping when he talks about this topic. And what he's saying is, he's saying, listen, I want you to have a farmer mentality. Say, I'm a farmer. (laughs) Paul wants you to have a farmer mentality in the family of God. Here's the thing I know about farming. It's slow. I haven't farmed a lot in my day, but here's what I know. (laughs) Do I look like a farmer? Okay. It's slow. It's really hard work but it has a really sweet payoff later. Paul is not saying, hey, if you do this, it's all going to be better right now. He's saying, no, have a farmer mentality. Pull out the weeds. Don't let weeds grow at the table. Start pulling out the weeds. It's slow, it's hard work, but it has a really sweet payoff. Listen, in the family of God, you have to have an oven mentality and not a microwave mentality. It's simple, but it's true. Don't click 30 seconds. You know, I, this is what I do. I pour my coffee, I put it in the microwave, 30 seconds, and I'm ready to go. The church is not like that. It's slow. It's hard work. It's sowing to the Spirit. It's love. It's like persevering in community for a year, like cultivating friendships. You're working, you're sowing and sowing, and eventually this, the, the payoff will be sweet. And what he says, if you don't give up. If you don't give up. So guys, I just want to encourage you tonight. I don't know where you need a farmer mentality. I don't know where you need to keep going. I don't know where you need to like hear the voices uh, of the the voice of the Lord encouraging you to say like, hey, don't grow weary. The hope is in the harvest. But I just want you. I want to tell you, if you cultivate and sow to the Spirit in the place that God has you, whether this community, your small group, your friendships, there will be a hope, and there will be a hope, and there is a hope in the harvest. Amen. All right. As we as we end tonight, I want to show you this picture one more time. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this back on you. Table fellowship. People used to sit there, but now they can't because there's, there's weeds. Sin has been allowed to grow because it hasn't been dealt with. I just want to ask you a question tonight as we wrap up. Who in your life, <clears throat> sorry, this is hard for me because there's, there's people in my mind that is that. Who in your life is that a picture of? Who in your life was like, we used to sit at the table and now there's weeds and we can't sit there? And maybe, here's the thing, it takes two people to ultimately have unity and that's why Paul says, as far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, be at peace. But sometimes, if we're just going to be honest, it's because of us that there's weeds. And I just want to ask you and encourage you who does that picture represent for you? And how might the Holy Spirit invite you and ask you to, to take just the next step to begin healing so there's a beautiful table of table fellowship at the end? Amen? Here's a question. If, when you're ending, I, I have a story, and then I'm going to end. <clears throat> One of the things that if I were listening to this, and I know I'm jumping around and there's a lot, but <clears throat> I really wanted you guys to hear a lot of these things. One of the things I want you to know that I've thought about a lot is, is it actually worth it to do that much work? Like, is it actually worth it to be that honest, to deal with sin in that way, to reconcile in that way? Is it actually worth it? Because it's, it's weary work sometimes. 
But I started like reflecting on my relationships and I noticed something very powerful and very fascinating. All of my best relationships have had a weed spring up in it. I almost go, I know if I'm close to somebody if, I'm, if I've argued with them. I know that sounds weird, but all of my closest friendships at some point have had a test where we come toe-to-toe and we have to work out some real hard things. And it's funny that Abel's here tonight because uh, Abel and I, like, we started to, like, work together. This is a while. We're giggling, and I'm not going to go into the whole story. Uh, but I love that he's here because I remember the moment that my relationship changed with Abel is after we argued. We had a disagreement about something that was going on in his life. I, like, I had an opinion about it. He had an opinion about it. Uh, he disagreed with my opinion about it. I got frustrated that he disagreed. And, and like, we ended up, like, arguing about it. And then other people got involved. And I remember after all that, I was like so frustrated. But then literally like the Lord started like softening my heart. He started showing me my sin. Believe it or not, I was actually wrong in some things. And I remember I, I remember I had to go to him. I had to apologize. I had to ask for forgiveness. There's other people in the room that I had to do that too. And I'm telling you from that day forward, our relationship has been incredible. Because we did the work of weed pulling. And I'm just saying, there could be a version of that for you. It could be a, a girlfriend or boyfriend in the room. It could be a family. It could be somebody in this room. It could be your small group leader. It could be me. It could be somebody else. I just want you to tell you, listen, relationships are worth it. God's church is worth it. And the glory of Jesus over, over and above those relationships is worth it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we love you. And... Uh, Lord, I know I went long tonight, um, but Lord, I trust that you, uh, there was a reason that you had this message tonight, and there are more fun messages to preach, Um, but God, oftentimes, Lord, working hard to reconcile, to be honest, is what will bring the most joy in our lives. And so God, I just pray that you would apply your word tonight in the way that you see fit. God, I pray that you would cultivate humility in our hearts. God, I pray that you would give us humility to reflect on our own sin uh, and look just honestly at our hearts and go, Lord, Lord, where am I just off and I need your healing? Lord, I also pray that you would give us bravery. Lord, if there is somebody that we need to have a conversation with, God, I pray that we would not avoid that. But God, I pray that in humility, we would step towards that relationship or that person in love and that we would give honesty, knowing that you are with us. And Lord, that you want reconciliation even more than we do. So Jesus, we love you. We worship you. And we praise your name. Amen. Listen, I know tonight a topic like this is heavy. And I just want to say we're going to sing a couple of songs and then we're going, to, we're going to leave tonight. But if you need prayer and maybe this is like stirring something in you or you just need courage or you just need some sort of prayer, uh, Jade and I are going to be at the back and we just want to pray for you and just uh, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you in a fresh way. But with that being said, let's, let's, let's stand, uh, let's sing, and let's worship our Lord because he is worthy of worship. And let's, and let's love each other. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored tonight. You are worthy of all of our praise. Lord, heal us. Fixate our eyes on Jesus. Produce a beautiful harvest in this community. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.